Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I think it's kindergarten and below, if you're in kindergarten below. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 12. Judges chapter 12. And if you want to get one of the chair Bibles around you, it's on page 212. We do have Bibles in the seats around you if you would like to use one of those. So everywhere we look in today's culture, men, men are under assault. There's a trending hashtag. It's the hashtag kill all men. You can also buy t-shirts that say this, so many men, so little ammunition. There's a book called Refusing to Be a Man where the author says this, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. There's a best-selling fiction writer. His name is Hugh Howey. He tweeted this out, Last year, he said, testosterone is the problem. Women should be in charge of everything. In 2016, the Public Religion Research Institute found that 46% of American men agree with this statement. 46%. Here's the statement. These days, society seems to punish men for acting like men. In a 2018 survey of millennials they asked which qualities do boys value what qualities do you think society values in boys and young men and here are some of the top on the list dominance aggression sexual prowess and athleticism only two percent of boys listed honesty and morality as a top virtue most statistics show that the typical church in America has 61% women and only 39% men in attendance. The average age that a boy is exposed to pornography today is, do you want to guess? Nine years old. So our nation is in crisis when it comes to biblical manhood. Now, why do I bring up the issue of biblical manhood this morning? Last week was a challenging sermon. I left us all with what we call a nasty. Jephthah made that stupid vow, and he ended up sacrificing his very own daughter. It was a nasty. It was a mindless death. He sacrificed his one and only daughter, and it accomplished nothing. But as we saw last week, the father sacrificed his one and only son, and it accomplished everything. So Judges chapter 12 tells us the rest of the story, the rest of the tragedy of Jephthah. Now remember, Jephthah was a son of a prostitute. He came from the wrong side of the tracks. 
He surrounded himself with worthless fellows. He was a smooth talker. His mouth was always getting him in trouble. He made that rash vow. He sacrificed his only daughter. He was the height of paganism and idolatry. But we're not done with Jephthah yet. So let's turn in our Bibles to Judges chapter 12, and let's see the rest of the story together. Judges chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over with you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said, Are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, Then say Shiboleth. And he said Siboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a city in Gilead. Last week in chapter 11, we saw that the Ammonites, that was the enemy of Israel, and they were defeated. But now Jephthah has to deal with another enemy, his own fellow countrymen, the tribe of Ephraim. Now, we've been introduced to the tribe of Ephraim before, back in chapter 8 remember they were upset that with Gideon and Gideon went out to them and gave some soft words and turned aside their anger but Jephthah is going to go try to do the same thing but he's not quite as soft as Gideon was back in chapter 8 now here's the issue geographically there's jealousy between east and west the Jordan River splits Israel right in half and so on the west side of the Jordan River was Jephthah and the Gileadites on the east side were the Ephraimites. And so the Ephraimites get upset with Jephthah. Why didn't you call us when you went out to fight against the Ammonites? We're so mad at you, Jephthah, we're going to burn down your house. And so twice we've seen the Ephraimites be prideful, be petty, be jealous. They're acting like prima donnas. They're not getting recognized. They don't have the, the spotlight. Their feelings are hurt that they weren't called in to be the center of attention. They're, they're epitomized by pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, One's pride will bring him low but he who was lowly in spirit will obtain honor. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon about pride. He calls pride a brainless thing as well as a groundless thing, for it brings no profit with it. There is no wisdom in self-exaltation. How often are you jealous when you don't get the spotlight? How often are you petty when you're not the center of attention? 
How often do you get your feelings hurt or your feathers ruffled when the spotlight is not turned on you? That's what's going on here with Ephraim. And so Jephthah, who is a smooth talker, is going to go try to negotiate his way out of this. And so in verse 3, he gives four reasons why they need to cool down. Cool down, Ephraimites. Don't cross the Jordan River and burn down my house. First thing he says is, hey, you guys didn't come when I called you the first time. Now, whether or not that's true, we don't know. He could have been fibbing. But he basically says, hey, I called you guys and you didn't come. We don't know if that's exactly true, but that's what Jephthah said. And then secondly, he says, hey, since you guys didn't come, I'm such a courageous guy. I went out there and risked my neck and I fought against the Ammonites without you. And then number three says, oh, yeah, by the way, God, God was on our side. God gave us the victory. I'm not sure if he was really concerned that much about God. Or was he just trying to look religious? And then fourthly, he basically says, how dare you question my leadership? I'm ruler of Israel. Why are you coming against me? So he's not as diplomatic and as soft as Gideon was back in chapter 8 with the same tribe. He basically lays into them. He doesn't mince words. Now, how do they respond? You don't quite get this in your English translations. But in verse 4, there's kind of a racial slur Verse 4, then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites. You're fugitives. You're a fugitive. That was almost like a racial slur. And it would have hit. It would have hit Jephthah right in the heart because remember, he had to flee from his home. Remember, his brothers came against him. He was the son of a prostitute. He had to uh, be kicked out of his family. But really what that word would mean in our language today, I'd basically be saying, you're the scum of the earth. You're the dregs of society. And so they're basically launching racial slurs at Jephthah. Now, in verse 5, we find a secret password that you have to get across the river. Okay, so here's the Jordan River, and if you wanted to cross, you had to say what? Shiboleth, which means flowing river. Well, the Ephraimites pronounced it Siboleth. Now, let me give you the best way I can understand this. My grandparents were from Missouri, and I get a kick about how they used to talk. What would happen if you wanted to go do this thing under the faucet before you eat? You go wash your hands. Go put the dirty clothes in the washer. What are those congressmen doing up there in Washington, D.C.? I don't know why my grandparents called it Warsh. But I guess if my grandparents came up to the river and they said, are you from Missouri? They'd say, well, we're not from Missouri. Say Wash, and they would say Warsh. It would give them away. That's kind of what's going on here with this Shibboleth, Sibboleth. And so the Ephraimites did not pronounce Shah. They pronounced it Suh, and so that gave them away. And what ended up happening here is that Jephthah tragically kills 42,000 fellow Israelites. 42,000. This is not a pagan nation, the Ammonites, the Moabites. These are his fellow Israelites, 42,000. And notice how his death is reported in verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. He had a six-year tenure, not very long. Then Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried in the city of Gilead. 
Do you notice something different based upon everything we've seen in Judges up to this point? Do you remember up to this point when a judge died? Know what it, know what it, remember what it would say? So-and-so judged Israel for so-and-so years, and the land was at rest for what? X amount of years. It doesn't say that here. The land's not at rest. All it says is this judge died. There's no statement about peace, God's presence. And so it's a tragic ending to a man that was a judge. God did raise him up to defeat the Ammonites. But he was a self-centered, brutal man. He didn't put the nation of Israel first. He was a master manipulator who used his words in unwise ways. He seized power. He killed his own tribesmen. He was desensitized to the violence around him. He actually got his own daughter killed because of that rash vow. He slaughtered 42,000 of his fellow Israelites. So here's the point. This is the lowest point of Israel in the book of Judges. This is about as bad as it can get. It's about as bad as it can get. Because what had happened was Jephthah, the leader, has become thoroughly paganized. He's become thoroughly Canaanized. He's not acting like an Israelite. He's a product of his pagan culture, and he never rose above the idolatry, the violence, and the rebellion. Now, he could have used his gifts as a speaker, as a talker, to glorify God, to lead the people, to use his words wisely. But tragically, he did not. He dies the son of a prostitute, never knowing his father and having his daughter killed and had a very short tenure as a judge. Okay, so we're done this morning, right? That's the, that's the story. But no, Pastor Sean's not going to let us get off that easy. What are the implications of the Jephthah narrative the past two weeks we've seen? Here's the, here's the implication. Here's the, here's the issue. Jephthah shows us the importance of biblical manhood. So here's the fundamental question we've got to ask about what's going on here. Where are the spiritual leaders in Israel during this time? Where are the priests? And why aren't they teaching and discipling the people? You see, God ordained the priests to be the official pastors, if you will, of Israel. And they were to go into village after village to teach the people the word of God so that they could follow the ways of God. Leviticus 10.11, talking to the priests, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. See, the priests are AWOL in the book of Judges. They're mentioned very little. They've not lived up to their role of teaching the people. Where are the priests? Okay, where are the fathers? Where are the dads in Israel? You see, the two men, the two groups of men that are the most responsible in Israel for discipling the next generation are nowhere to be found in Judges. The fathers are absent. The priests are absent. And Jephthah is a product of this failure. So here's the bottom line. When men abdicate their roles 
as the spiritual leaders in the home, the church, and society at large, there will be sin, disunity, and idolatry. So I'm going to address the men this morning. Women, you can listen, and you can nudge your husband or your boyfriend, but I'm going to specifically address the men this morning. Whether you're a grandfather that's been around the block or you're a young teenage boy or you're a young man getting ready to get married and all ages in between, I'm going to address the men this morning. There are three spheres of spiritual leadership that men must assume in this world. So if you're a man or a boy here, there are three spheres that you are responsible for in being a spiritual leader leader if you are a christian man and we're going to start from the inside and move out the most important to the the least important although they're all important here's sphere number one godly men lead their homes men we are called to sacrifice everything to love and lead our wives sacrificially ephesians 5 25 through 29 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Husbands were were called to sacrificially, continually love our wives with this, what the Bible calls agape-type love, a sacrificial love. And let me just say it this way, it is a supernatural kind of love because men, it is hard, women don't take offense at this, men sometimes it's hard to love our wives and wives it's sometimes hard to love your husbands. So this is a supernatural type of love that only God gives you to be able to love. And what's our model, men? Jesus. Paul says, We are to love our wives in the same way that Jesus loved the church. And how did Jesus love the church? He voluntarily sacrificed himself for her. Men, we have to voluntarily sacrifice ourselves for our wives. Not that we're her savior, not that we die for her sins, but we voluntarily sacrifice everything for her greatest good. What did Jesus say when He was about to go to the cross about him being the good shepherd. He said in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then down in verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I receive from my Father. Jesus laid down his life for us. Husbands, We are called to sacrificially lay down our lives for our wives. And then in verse 29 there of Ephesians, Paul says there are two ways we do this. First, he says we're to nourish our wife. Now, that word in the original language means to bring to maturity. Men, how are you aiding in bringing your wife to maturity? 
Are you helping or are you hindering her growth? Let me just ask it this way. Is your home a greenhouse for her to flourish or is your house a cesspool of suppression and toxicity? What type of environment are you creating in the home for your wife to grow, to mature? And then secondly, it says in that passage that a husband is to cherish his wife. In the original language, it means to keep warm, but figuratively, it means to show tenderness. There are two ways a man loves his wife. He loves her through protection and physical protection and being there for her and nourishing her, but he also loves her through tenderness, through comforting, through listening to her, to understanding her needs. I will say this, men, and when I do counseling with with couples and when I counsel with men, I will say this. Men, your wife's greatest need is security. She needs to know that she's secure financially, emotionally, spiritually, and always your wife needs to know that she is secure and that you are taking care of her. So husbands, does your wife know that you value her above all other human relationships, even the children? In addition to loving your wives, men, as you lead the home, you're also to teach and discipline your children. So Deuteronomy 6, 4-7. through Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And, <coughs> excuse me, and when you lie down and when you rise. There are three verbs in this passage of how we are to teach our children. The first one is teach diligently. Teach diligently. That word diligently in the original Hebrew, it's an interesting word picture. It means to sharpen an arrow or sharpen a sword. The picture is that you're to press in those truths deep into your child's heart and soul that you're impressing upon them. You're teaching them the truths of knowing and loving the Lord. So you teach diligently. But then also, parents and especially fathers, you talk openly. You talk openly. You see, your home should be a safe place for discussion and dialogue. As dads do family worship with their children. As dads do the Baptist catechism with their children. As dads have times where you can just have conversations with your children, where you can talk. They come home from school. Is it a safe place to talk openly? So you teach them diligently. You talk openly. But then you walk regularly. He says, well, as you walk on the way. These are the unscheduled times of teaching. Those spontaneous times where maybe you're in the car and, and a conversation comes up. You as a dad, you as a parent need to be ready to engage your children. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Fathers, you don't want to give your children a right to have righteous anger. 
because you've discouraged them or you've provoked them or you've treated them in ungodly ways. Instead, we're to bring them up. That's the same word that was used earlier about how we're to nourish our wives. We're to bring them up, to feed them, to nurture them in two ways, Paul says there in Ephesians 6, 4. First, in the discipline. This is just the basic teaching of doctrinal truth. This is the the general teaching of a child. Teaching them, guiding them through discipline. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates the son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So dad, you're, you're responsible for disciplining your children, but the second thing besides discipline is the word instruction. Now, you may think, what's the difference between discipline and instruction? Instruction deals more with kind of getting in the child's face and, and rebuking them, correcting them, steering them in the right direction. And so Fathers, you're, 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 geared, you're, gearing your, you're gearing your teaching towards the mind of a child. You want the child to grow and learn and have their mind filled with truth, but you're also going for their heart and their will, and sometimes you may need to correct them with some words of rebuke. So the number one sphere where men are to be the leaders is in the home. Men are to love and lead their wives sacrificially and to teach and guide their children for the glory of God. That's the first sphere, okay? Here's the second sphere. Godly men lead the church. Now, this is not applicable to everybody, specifically to the elders of the church. So, as Mickey said earlier during our time of confession, in a world that's hostile to the gospel, we need spiritual leaders who are unashamedly ready to preach God's word two ways, okay? I like these two words. Without reservation and without hesitation. We need men, not just in Emmanuel Baptist Church, but all across our nation, men who will stand up and say, thus saith the Lord without hesitation and without reservation. To be bold in the pulpit. 2 Timothy 4, 1-4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and it is here now, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's where we are today. So we need godly spiritual men to lead our churches in the truth. Titus 1.9 says, He, the elder, the pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. We may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. So we need strong godly elders and leaders to teach boldly the word of God, but we also need godly leaders to be shepherds of the flock and good examples. 1 Peter 5, 1-3 So exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Okay, more than ever, 
We need pastors who will preach with courage and clarity. We need men of courage and of clarity in our pulpits. It's a desperate need in our nation. Paul prayed for these two things. Ephesians 6, 19-20, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says twice there, I want to be able to have boldness, courage, when I speak. And then in Colossians 4, 2-4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul says, I want to pray for courage and clarity. And so we need pulpits across this land where men are not afraid to stay up and stand up and say, I have the courage to say that this is what the Bible says. And not only do I have the courage to say it, but I'm going to say it with clarity. I'm not going to mince words. I'm not going to be confusing. I'm not going to obfuscate. I'm not going to dodge. I'm going to say what the Word of God says and not be ashamed of it. We need men of courage and clarity in our pulpits. So pray for me as your pastor because it's going to get harder. Pray for Pastor Dustin. Pray for our elders. Pray for us to remain faithful to God's absolute truth, to be able to preach and teach and lead with courage and clarity. So sphere number one, men, is in your homes. Are you leading your wives and your children? Number two, in the church. Are godly men leading the church? And here's number three, sphere number three. Godly men lead in our society at large. Men, we need godly citizens to lead this nation, to lead your communities, to lead in culture. Now, this is where it's going to require men. Here's some things, men. I'm going to be real honest with you. To be a strong, godly man in culture, here's the first thing you're going to have to do. You're going to have to count the cost of what it means to live as a true believer of Jesus in a hostile culture. There's no more time to play around with Christianity. We are living in a negative world, and you've got to count the cost and say, if I'm going to live as a true Christian in this culture, what's the cost? Because it will cost in this culture to live as a godly man. Jesus tells us in Luke 14, 27 through 33, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great far way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Men, are you ready to count the cost of what it means to live as a true believer in this hostile culture? It's no time to shrink away from the culture, but you've got to count the cost. And then also, men... One of the ways you can be godly and be a leader is you can pursue excellence 
in your work and your career. Don't settle for mediocrity, but pursue excellence. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work heartily. Work diligently. Pursue excellence in your job, in your occupation. Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12.11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Are you a positive witness for Christ at the workplace? Are you a hard worker? Are you dependable? Are you pursuing excellence or are you settling for mediocrity? Man, we must also wisely represent Jesus in our politics and our interactions with cultural issues. There's nothing wrong with men getting involved in political issues to be a voice for the gospel and God's truth in the public square. So ultimately, men, all men, we must defend and proclaim the truth in a culture that hates Jesus and by extension hates us. So why do we open the worship service with 2 Timothy 1.7? God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We need men who are not afraid, but who have the power of God and the love of God and the self-control of God to do what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Corinthians 16.13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. That third word there, act like men, in the original language, it really means be manly in the face of courage. Step up to the plate, man up. Here's something that you need to understand very clearly. In our culture, in our homes, in our, in our nation, it's not whether or not men will lead. It's what kind of men will lead. There will be people who will always be leading and it may be ungodly leadership. It may be toxic leadership. The issue is not, are men going to lead? Yes, men are going to lead. The question is, what kind of men are going to lead? Are they going to be godly men? Are they going to be men of conviction? Are they going to be men of the gospel? Are they going to be Jesus-loving men that lead? You see, when godly men lead their homes, their churches, and society at large, God receives glory. Now, men, at this point, you may think, this is a tall order. Pastor Sean's stepping on my toes. I feel intimidated. I feel challenged. I may even feel a little bit discouraged. Last thing I want you to hear me to say is, man up, and then just leave. Okay, man up. Go pull yourself up by your bootstripes. Man up and go do it. I want to give you some good news today. 2 Peter 1.3, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Claim this promise, men. 
His divine power has granted to us all things. Say that with me, all things. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Our sovereign God has given you everything you need to be the man that God called you to be. His divine power has given you everything you need to lead your home, to lead this church, to lead in our society. And God's not left us to ourselves to somehow operate in our own strength. His divine power has given us everything we need. And what kind of power is this? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, that resurrection power that burst Jesus from the tomb is available to all of us to live the life God has called us to live, both men and women. It is resurrection power. And not only is it resurrection power, but who lives inside of you always to give you that power? The Holy Spirit. So you have an empty tomb, and you have the Holy Spirit that prove that God has given you everything you need. Now, men, when you fail, and that will be often, first one to raise my hand, Jesus gives us the power to repent, to follow him. He forgives you. He picks you back up on your feet. And he says, my child, I'm giving you strength to move ahead. It's in the past. Let's move ahead. Men, God is bigger than all our failures. And God has given you everything you need to be a godly man. Men, God is sovereign over your family. God is sovereign over this church. And God is sovereign over our nation. So if God is sovereign... Man up. Live in the confidence of that reality. Trust in Jesus who gives you the power to be the man that God called you to be. And so let's remember this, men. Let's just remember this. God does everything for His glory and for our good. That is a truth. God does everything for His glory and for our good. If that's true, oh, how we need men to step up to the plate and be godly leaders for the glory of God and for the good of His people. So men, my call to you is to man up, but not in your own strength. Man up in the strength of Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look to Jesus. God is bigger than our failures. God is sovereign over our lives. And because we serve a big God, we can trust Him to be the men and women that God called us to be. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. This is kind of spontaneous, but... I think it would be appropriate to have all the men and boys just come down to the front here this morning. I want to pray over you, men. And women, I know you're in your seat, and you can be praying for your husbands or your dads or your boyfriends or whoever it is that's coming down here, but I just want to, I want to pray over you, men.
And guys in the balcony, come on down. You're the next contestant. <laughs> Women, I want you to look at this. I just want you to look at this. Not many churches have this many men standing at the front. So men, grab an arm. <laughs> grab each other. Women, you can just maybe extend your arms out to pray for the men. So I'm going to pray over you guys. Father in heaven, we know that you are a good and gracious father. And it is hard to be a man in this culture at times. There are so many pressures on us as husbands, as dads, as as men at the workplace, Lord, I think about the boys here and the challenges they may face at school or in sports. The young men here that are thinking about getting married, some of them may be engaged, newly married. Lord, some of these grandfathers that are here that have been around the block for many years and look at the, the younger generation coming up, Lord, just all the pressures that we have as men. And Lord, we want to trust in your power that's given us everything we need to be the men you've called us to be. So Lord, I pray for these men. Would you give them strength and courage to lead their homes? Those that are married to love their wives, those that are dads to lead their children. Lord, I want to pray specifically for our elders and spiritual leaders in this group that you would help us to lead this church well. And Lord, I want to pray for all these men as they go out this week and live their lives at their workplace or whatever their, their place is in this culture, that they would be godly examples. And Lord, I want to pray especially for the young boys here. Protect these young boys. Lord, protect these young boys from the evils of our culture. Protect them from pornography. Protect them from violence. Protect them from crime and alcoholism and drug abuse or any type of, of, of abuse that would be inflicted upon them, Lord. Lord, I pray for the teenage boys too, Lord, that you would give them strength. And Lord, I don't want to forget the single dads that may be raising their children on their own. And Lord, single moms too. Maybe some of these boys don't have a dad in the home, and so, Lord, I pray for the moms that are raising these, these boys, that you would give her strength as well. So, Lord, we want to surround these men this morning. We, we love, Lord, I love these men. I pray for these men. Lord, would we be godly men that make a difference in this culture for the glory of God and for the good of your people. So, Lord, I pray a blessing over them. I pray that they would have courage. I pray that they would have support. Lord, help us as a church to just surround these men and give them the strength they need that only comes from you. And all the women in the room said together, amen, amen. All right, guys.